right, we are in the last week of our series on Ephesians. Oh, yeah, that was good. That was good. You guys are not tracking with me here, you know? It's been a super fun series. And uh, man, Pastor Sarah, or Pastor Sarah, Pastor Laura, we don't have a Pastor Sarah. Pastor, no, we do. We do, we do, we do. We have a Pastor Sarah and Sandy, uh, our worship pastor. Anyway, that's for another day. Pastor Laura, man, she just killed it last week. Uh, I, I gave her like a really easy passage of scripture, right? Uh, on submission. And boy, did she do such a great job of helping us understand what Paul was writing uh, to these Ephesian Christians. And, and really, that's what this whole series has been about to, you know, we can't, we're not doing a deep dive into and, and kind of dissecting every verse, but we're trying to understand the themes, right? The flow of thought that Paul had for these believers in Ephesus and for us as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And, and so what we've discovered, uh, to rattle through it really, really quickly, is that we have been given a new status in Jesus Christ, and not just a new status, but a new identity, like, like we are new human beings in Christ Jesus because of what Christ Jesus has done. He gives us a new identity. And in fact, one of the verses that we took a look at uh, in week one was Ephesians chapter two, right? And the first few verses, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. And we're no longer, and we're gonna talk about this today, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That sounds like a horror movie or something, doesn't it? Like, like, ooh, I wonder what that's all got to be about, right? But Paul is saying that because of your change in allegiance, because you're no longer following the ways of this world, you're following Jesus Christ, because of that change in allegiance, right, that we have this new identity that we're living out. And, and for those early Christians, they would have had a change in allegiance. It would have been, their allegiance would have formerly been to Caesar and the Roman Empire and all that that stood for. And boy, if they didn't, if they weren't loyal to Caesar, there was going to be trouble. But in G what Jesus Christ has done for them, they switch allegiance to Jesus. And so we have this new status, we have this new identity, but we've also understood through this series that Jesus, in giving us a new identity, he places us in a new family. And that family is now known, I mean, Paul talks about it throughout his writings, but that new family is the body of Christ. It is the church. And so we recognize that God gives us a new identity, but he sets us into a new family. And as we discovered two weeks ago, and Laura kind of continued on the practicality of that, what we discovered was that the purpose of that new identity, that new family, was so that God could have a new humanity here on earth. That there's a new way of being human. There's this citizenship of the kingdom of God. This house, we're members of the household of God. That we live and in an entirely different way. And this is why we as a church family have adopted kind of this mission that we are living out God's extraordinary story. Right? The story of the kingdom of God. And we're doing so the way Jesus shows us. Like, we ought to be living and reflecting life a different way than those, perhaps, that we live in neighborhoods or work with who don't follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is establishing his kingdom here on earth. In fact, Jesus actually talked about this in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It said this, and it says that Jesus went into Galilee... And he was proclaiming the good news of God. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. But he was proclaiming the good news of God. 
Now, oftentimes we as Western believers uh, and American believers, we kind of interpret that as, oh yeah, that's what Jesus did for me on the cross and the resurrection. And remember we talked about this on week one, I get my golden ticket to heaven, I'm gonna hang on, I get to avoid the unhappy place, the sad place, and I get to go to the happy place, right? And what we're discovering through these letters that Paul's written is that it's so much more than that. But, but Jesus actually said the same thing because the verse continues. He says, the time has come, he said, that the kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe this good news. In other words, what Jesus was saying himself is that the announcement of the proclamation of the good news wasn't just that I would be saved from my sins and have the opportunity to go to heaven. No, no, no. The proclamation of the gospel was that the kingdom of God had now come. There's a new king in town. There's a new ruler. There's a new authority. The way in which the world works is going to begin to change because of this good news, because of the coming of the kingdom of God. Kingdom, of course, is just the king's domain. And what we discover when you look at the life of Jesus is that, that Jesus is living in an entirely different way to the way the world was living. Right? Instead of greed, there was generosity, right? Instead of, instead of hatred, there was love. Instead of me, myself, and I, there was considering others more important than self. And what we see in the life of Jesus is, is the first of this new race of human beings who is living his life in such a way that he's laying it down for the life of others. Jesus is introducing us to this inside out, upside down kingdom of God here on earth. And, and we recognize, in fact, Jesus actually says it this way. He says that, that in this kingdom, the weakest, and of course, we as Americans don't like to think about this, but the, the weakest in the kingdom will be the greatest. It's an upside down kingdom. It's life lived an entirely different way. In fact, this is kind of unpopular. We don't like to talk about this much, but Jesus actually described it this way. He said that if you're going to be my follower, he said, you actually have to take up your cross the way that I took up my cross, and you've got to deny yourself and lay down your life for other people. And so we recognize, we begin to recognize in the life of Jesus that there's this tension that gets set up. There's this kind of, yes, Jesus has come and there's now freedom and there's victory because he's overcome sin, hell, death, the devil. Like he, he has overcome all of these things, but, but it leads to not a life of me doing my own thing. It leads to a life of me laying down my life, of me being a representation and a following the example of Jesus. And what it does internally, and what we're going to discover today, not just internally, but what we're going to discover in the world in which we live, is that it sets up a tension. It sets up a struggle. It sets up this battle. Now, I, uh, as you know, I grew up in Ireland, and uh, I have about 15, I'm estimating maybe 15 20 years until I retire. So that's the time that I have with you here. And one of my objectives is to get you to understand that rugby really is the world's best game. <laughs> I'm just telling you, I tried to watch a game of baseball yesterday. My gosh, that was terrible. <laughs> but but uh, in fact, I have a picture of me when I was 18 years old on the Royal Belfast Academical Institution second 15 rugby team. Here we are right here. Right here. Okay, so can you guys guess which one I am? Am I in the top row, the bottom row, or the front row, or the middle row, the front row? 
What, front row? Okay, you got it. Somebody said, can anyone guess which one I am? The one on the very far right. Look at that kid, man. He's a good-looking kid, right? Yeah, I wonder what happened to him. He came to America. He ate processed food. He gained a lot of weight. <laughs> what can I say? It, that's what America does to you. Anyway, one of the things about playing rugby, and, and I'm just going to keep teaching you. Every week, I'm going to teach you something new about rugby, okay? Uh, by the way, I also, uh, just because I'm a well-rounded individual, I also played the violin, yeah, so I played rugby and I played the violin. Not while I was playing rugby, by the way, okay. But, but rugby is this game that you have to advance the ball forward. You can't throw the ball forward. You have to advance it forward within your hands. And, and the thing about rugby is that, that you're trying to move the ball down the field. You're trying to score what's called a try, not a touchdown. And so you're trying to score this try, but all the while there's resistance the whole way down the field. In fact, I got a picture of you, or a picture for you, not of you. Uh, yeah, yeah, look at that guy. Isn't that tough? These are high school students, you know. That's not me, by the way. Um, but the point simply is this, is that, that what Paul is trying to help us understand as he closes out this letter is that because of this tension that's set up in the world in which we live, there's those who are, have allegiance to Jesus and there are those who don't know it but have allegiance to the story or the kingdom of this world, right? There's this internal kind of conflict that goes on. And what Paul is trying to help us understand as we are trying to advance the kingdom of God, as we are trying to be like Jesus, loving instead of hating, generous instead of greedy, others focused instead of self-focused, laying down our lives as opposed to taking it up. As we're trying to advance the kingdom of God and move the ball down the field, there will be resistance. There will be something that you and I will experience, something you and I will, as you just try to move forward in your relationship with Jesus, as we try to move forward as a new family and as a new humanity, trying to display the kingdom of God here on earth, there will be resistance. And this is how Paul closes out the letter. Paul has written to us in these previous five, five and a half chapters, as we'll discover, and he's, he's written all of these things about new identity and a new family and a new humanity and the kingdom of God being established upon the earth in and through a people that are loyal and their, their allegiances to Jesus. And he finishes the letter by saying, now, now all of that, you're going to experience some resistance. In fact, look what he says in Ephesians chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles or an iPhone or an iPad, turn there, and we'll have it on the screen as well. But it says this in Ephesians chapter 6. These are Paul's closing thoughts and comments in this letter that he's written to these people in Ephesus. And he says this. He says, finally. Okay, okay, let's stop right there. Okay, I do this every week, don't I? We do one word and then we stop, right? Because oftentimes when we read that, we go, okay, finally, like in conclusion, right? But what Paul, and, and, and what Paul is trying to help us understand by the use of this word, in fact, the, the word was probably better translated henceforth. Now, when's the last time you used the word henceforth in a conversation? In fact, that's my challenge to you this week. It's not about reading Ephesians or inviting people to Easter. It's about using the word henceforth, right, in a conversation this week. My staff, we're going to be, the staff, it's on like Donkey Kong this week, right? Henceforth, right? Henceforth, in other words, what Paul is wanting us to understand is because of all that I have written to you, you know this new status, this new identity, this new family, this kingdom of God coming here on earth, that you're a new kind of humanity, because of all of that, from this point forward, 
here's how I need you to live your life, to posture your life. And what we're going to discover in the next few verses is that Paul's repeating something that he said to us over and over in this letter. Or this letter. He says this, finally, be strong. What? In the Lord. And in the might and his mighty power. Paul, once again, is trying to bring us back to this thing that we so often forget because our humanity often try, oftentimes tries to get us to live out of our own strength, our own wisdom, our own independence, right? Our own abilities. And what Paul is trying to say is if you're going to be a new Christian, a new kind of human being, living in a new family, a new kind of humanity, kingdom of God here on earth, you have to remain in Christ Jesus, you have to remain strong in the power of his might. It's a little bit like if you, uh, some of you maybe like to, you know, kind of plant stuff and grow stuff and eat stuff that you've actually grown. Um, like I said, I just eat processed foods. But maybe you've planted a little tree, right? You know, a little sapling. And, and you and I know that, like, especially living here in the Pacific Northwest, right, that thing's going to get blown about, right, with windstorms and rainstorms. I mean, that's what it's been like over the last few months, hasn't it been? And, and so what you do when you plant a little sapling is that you drive a stake into the ground and you bind that sapling, you attach that sapling to the stake so that the sapling can stand firm. This is what Paul is wanting us to understand. You don't stand firm in your own strength because you and I don't have the ability to stand firm in our own strength. We don't have the ability to resist that which would resist us. And so Paul is saying, I need you to be bound to Jesus Christ, that you draw your strength and your power from who you're connected to and who he wants you and needs you to be connected to is Christ Jesus. But he goes on and he says this, put on. We've talked about this, haven't we, over the last couple of weeks? We gotta put off. We gotta renew the spirit of our mind. We gotta put on. And now he's specific. I want you to put on the full armor of God so that there's a reason why we put on the full armor of God. So that you can take your stand, look at this, against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. Look at this, in the heavenly realm. Whoa, Paul, like, man, you're like, wow, like, there's like a ton of stuff in there. Like, Paul, what is it, what, like, like, put on this armor. Whose armor is it? It's God's armor, right? God's armor. Put on the armor of God so that, in other words, for the purpose of taking your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, that, that's a really interesting phrase. Like, what, what does he mean, these devil's schemes? In fact, schemes, because I looked it up in the dictionary. Love the dictionary. It's awesome. Um, schemes is just an elaborate or, or systematic plan for a course of action designed to achieve an overall aim. And the devil 
who is the enemy of God, who hates God, who hates the kingdom of God. And we'll unpack this a little bit more. Who is the devil and what does this look like and all that kind of stuff. We'll look at that in a minute. But the devil has a set of schemes. He has an overall plan, an aim, which is hatred towards God and the destruction of the kingdom of God. Now, what we know, because we live on the other side of the cross, what we recognize and what we'll see this morning is that because of Jesus Christ, the victory has already been won. But the enemy, his hatred of God so much that his schemes continue to attack, to resist the purpose, the will, the plan, the advancement of God's kingdom. In fact, this isn't the first time that we've seen this word schemes in the letter to the Ephesians. In fact, look, if you've got your Bible, turn over to Ephesians 4 and verse 14. And in context, what Paul in chapter 4 was writing about, if you remember, is that God placed us in this new family, the church. And in verse 14, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves or carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and look at this, by the craftiness in, or by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And what Paul now in chapter 6 is revealing, the mystery that's being revealed here, is that the schemes that he talked about in chapter 4 are fueled by the devil. Now, here's our challenge. Um, Because we live in the Western world, and unless we can touch it, taste it, smell it, right? What are the other senses? Touch it, taste it, smell it, feel it, hear it. There you go. Unless there's empirical evidence, we're like, eh, I don't know if it really exists, right? And, and yet, you know, we, we don't like see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. And the challenge is that in the Western world, in fact, Barna did some research a number of years ago uh, amongst Christians, and, and what he reports in his findings is, is that 60% of Christians don't believe in a created being called the devil, so if you don't, which by the way is intellectually inconsistent because we believe in a spiritual being called God, but we don't believe in an enemy, a spiritual be- be- being called the devil. And yet the Bible talks a lot about devil and Satan and principalities and powers and all of these kinds of things. And so what we discover is that, that Paul in his writings recognizes that there is a spiritual world. There's a a dynamic beyond what you and I can see, touch, and feel, and hear, and sense, right? That, that, That operates in this world. And, and Paul, he actually addresses this quite a bit throughout the, all of his letters, but, but in Ephesians, he talks about it, you see it in chapter 1, in fact, in chapter 2, you know, the, we just read that verse, right, that when we follow the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of this air, like, what's he talking about? Chapter 3, he says, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And Paul seems to, like, talk about this realm, these, the heavenly realms, these principalities and authorities and rulers of this dark age, like what is it that Paul's talking about? And in order to understand, I think, what Paul's talking about, and in order for us to understand the resistance that might try to come against us as you and I try to live for Christ and advance the kingdom of God here on earth by being like Jesus, living like Jesus, we have to understand a little bit of Paul's worldview. 
Now, worldview is a, a set of beliefs, right, that really inform, or it's actually even something even behind kind of your beliefs. It's a way of seeing the world that is, informs your beliefs, is informed by your beliefs, and ultimately will lead to how you live your life, right? That's actually how you live out life. You and I have a worldview. Well, Paul, in understanding how the world was set up and how the world functions, he begins to help us understand a little bit about this realm called the spirit spiritual realm or the heavenly realm. Now for you and I, we oftentimes, when we think of the earth, right, we think of the earth, here we are on planet earth, it's everything that we see, touch, feel, and experience, right? And then there's this place called heaven. We talked about this in week one, right? Um, does anyone want to go to heaven? Anybody, anybody, okay, we got a few, that's good, Whew. praying for the rest of you, praying for the rest of you, that's why we do church every week. Hopefully we can raise those numbers. <laughs> but that's how we tend to live, isn't it? I'm here on earth. I know Jesus did something on the cross and he rose from the dead. And, and, and because he did, I can someday get to heaven, right? And that's how we tend to see the world. That's actually not how Paul saw the world. Paul saw these distinct but overlapping realities of earth and, and you see this in his writings, the heavens, plural, and so there's this place called the heavens or the heavenly realm, and there's this kind of overlapping realities. They're distinct, but they're overlapping. And what we recognize is that Jesus Christ, when he was crucified on the cross, he conquered sin, death, hell, the devil, all the forces of the, of the heavenly realm. It says that he's given the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. All authority has been given to him. And the Bible teaches us that when he ascended, he's in three in the heavenlies, right? He's seated, seated on his throne and he's ruling and reigning in the heavenlies. But there's an impact and an effect on the earth. And this is why Jesus, or Paul, sorry, in chapter two, says that you're no longer dead. You're alive. You're no longer following the ways of this world and the prince of the power of the air. No, no, no. You're following Jesus who's a throne in the heavenlies, right? Who's been given all authority above everything in the heavens and the earth. But there's a second view. There's a second thing that really informed Paul's worldview. And, and you see it in chapter 2. And I think it's in verse it's the latter part of chapter two. I can't remember the verse, but he says this. He says, and if you've been reading it, and we've referred to it over the last couple of weeks, that there's this age and the age to come. How many remember reading that? Or Yeah, I vaguely remember something about that. Yeah. Well, what, that's how most of us, in fact, that's how the Hebrew mind would have thought about kind of the age and the age to come. That there's this age and, and this age that we currently live in. And in that age, there's all kinds of, go ahead and put up all the words. There's evil, there's sin, there's death, there's slavery, there's violence, there's curse. And how many of you would re recognize that, man, that kind of feels like the age in which we live. It's broken. But there's this, there's this apocalypse, there's this day of the Lord, there's something that happens, and when that happens, that I will then enter into the age to come. And in the age to come, it's filled with justice and love and freedom and shalom and blessing. It's, it's what our hearts yearn for. It's the way things were meant to be. It's what God created in Genesis 1 and 2, and we destroyed in Genesis 3. But Jesus coming back creates this opportunity for us at some point in the future, we'll be in the age to come. 
It's why so many of the ancient writers would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because I want to go to that place. I'm weary and tired of the brokenness that I'm experiencing in the world in which I live. And that's how many of us view the world, isn't it? That's how many of us think about age and age to come and how it'll be. And for Paul, that's how it would have been in a Hebrew mindset. But, but what Paul discovers and what Paul recognizes on the, the revelation that comes to him and what he begins to teach us is that it's not age and age to come in terms of distinct, but there's this overlapping realities, right, of this age, the now that we're in and the not yet, and it's why you experience moments where you're just brokenhearted by the sin and the evil and the devastation of the world in which we live. But at the same time, there can be moments where, man, you see the beauty of life as it was meant to be because somebody's loving and being generous. It's why, you know, in my own life, and I didn't share this in first service, but I was actually born with a hole in the heart. And I had reached the point uh, where actually, to be honest with you, at 11 years old, they actually told me not to play rugby and not to be involved in sports because it was actually just, and I used to have to go to get EKGs every year and all that kind of stuff. And I was in a setting just like this and, and I was in worship and I felt this heat in my chest and, uh, and there was something that happened that when I went back to the doctor about a month later for my annual EKG, they're like, uh, we don't know what to tell you. It's like gone, right? Because... Because the age to come, when everything is as it was meant to be, had entered into the now. And, and what theologians will teach us, and I, I know this is a lot, but it's so important for us to have a right worldview and right thinking around this idea. What theologians teach us is that the age to come was inaugurated at next, next weekend, what we celebrate, at the, the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That inaugur inaugurated the age to come, the kingdom of God beginning to take root and take place on this broken planet that we've destroyed by our sin. And it's ultimately consummated, right? Ultimately fulfilled. We fully enter into the age to come at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that puts us in a contested space, doesn't it? You can see by the diagram, right? That we live in the in-between, don't we? And so we are dealing with a resistance, a struggle, a battle, but we've got to understand that the victory has already been secured because of what Jesus Christ did on the, on the cross and his resurrection, right? No, it's, but it's a little bit like, how many of you, it's a little bit like World War, like, you know, if you're a World War II historian, you understand that World War II had ended, the Allies' forces had uh, achieved victory, the Japanese had surrendered, but there were islands spread out across the Pacific where the battle continued because they didn't know that the victory had already been conquered or already won. And in the same way, we live in this contested space where the enemy will do everything he can to resist the advancement of the kingdom of God. So don't be surprised when you face resistance because we live in this contested space. It's an active struggle. And what Paul says, he says this, I want you to take your stand against the devil's schemes. And so Paul is wanting us to have this posture that, that we will take our stand. That we will, because of our allegiance to Jesus, we will, in Christ, stand and resist the enemy who's trying to push back on the kingdom of God. Now, 
The Bible teaches us that, and I got to move a little quicker. The Bible teaches us that there are three enemies that we face. Because sometimes what we do, and maybe you've been around, you ever been around someone, you know, the car doesn't start, you know, and they go, oh, it's the devil. <laughs> it's not the devil. More than likely, it's not the devil. The devil is not in your transmission. You have, a, you have a starter that needs to be replaced. And your battery's not getting charged, and that's why it's not starting, right? Like, like, sometimes we get weird about this stuff, right? But the Bible actually teaches us that we have three enemies. And the first enemy is simply this, the flesh. The flesh, in other words, our sinful cravings. Did anyone struggle or deal with sin this week? I got my hand raised. The rest of you are liars. That's supposed to lie when you come to church. Right? We have these sinful cravings. In fact, this is what Paul says in, in Galatians 5. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify what? The desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. In other words, you know that you, there are things that you are called to do because you are in relationship with Christ and Christ is tugging on your heart to move you down that path, right? But there's resistance because your flesh doesn't want to do it. You ever been, you ever been kind of in a, you know, you feel like the Lord's saying, hey, I want you to give 50 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks to someone? You ever been there? You ever felt the struggle of that? Yeah, that's your flesh, by the way, Right? Because our flesh doesn't want to do that. I want it for me. You know what I could do with 100 bucks? That would be like a week's worth of coffee for me. That'd be awesome, right? <laughs> we don't want to do it. That's the struggle. But, but look, look what, in fact, Jesus actually addressed. He says, watch and pray. This is Matthew 26. Watch and pray that you, do not, you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is? You and I got a struggle. We got an enemy. We got a, something that we got to contend against. The flesh. The second one that the, the Bible teaches us is the world. And, and it's this, the word cosmos, right? It's this order or arrangement. It's the systems of this world. In fact, it says in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies under the sway or the influence of the wicked one. And look, you don't have to be, you just turn on the news, right? Like live a week with our eyes open, and you cannot miss the systems and the order of the world in which we live. The power structures, the greed, the bias, right? You can see things in education, you see things in media, you see things in, in government, you see th uh, disease, right? Like, like there's just a world in which we live, and you and I understand that it's absolutely broken, but the Bible tells us that it's under the sway or the influence of the evil one, the wicked one. And the last one, the last enemy that the Bible teaches us we have is the devil. The devil, the, the slanderer, liar, he's the personal enemy of God and his kingdom. In fact, in 1 Peter 5.18, he says this, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so we, we have the flesh, we have the world, we have the devil. And what we discover is that actually all three of those tend to work in conjunction with each other, right? We, there's this enemy that's opposed to the kingdom of God, right? So God wants us to be generous, but we live in a world, right, where the schemes of the devil is to advance greed, selfishness, me first, my wants, my desires, my passions. Like, it's crazy, I went to buy a pair of Bostons. You know, do you know what Bostons are? Some of you know, because some of you are super hip. Bostons are these 
Birkenstocks? I know. I don't, I, I, I'm glad I couldn't buy them. Right? But the whole thing was driven by TikTok. Because there was this trend on TikTok to buy Bostons and, everybody, and every store sold out of Bostons, right? right? My point is simply this. We live in a world that promotes materialism, possessions, stuff. In fact, you might even feel a little bit inferior if you don't have as much stuff as your neighbor has. What is that? That's the schemes of the world in which we live. So one day, and I've already used this example, but the Holy Spirit shows up and says, hey, I want you to be generous. And what are you fighting against? You're fighting against a culture and a system in the world that has promoted materialism and greed and selfishness. And God, because you're following Jesus Christ, he says, hey, I want you to be generous. And you're like, it's not easy to be generous. I thought this would be easier. Why? Because you're feeling resistance from your flesh, from the world in which we live, and from the devil and his schemes behind all of that. And so the question is, how do we engage in this battle? How is it that the Bible, what is it Paul would teach us about how do we engage in this battle? And this is where we got to be really careful. Because there are those who underestimate the devil. There are those who, oh, it's just the devil. And by the way, the devil is not God's co-equal. The devil is not kind of an equal and opposing force to God. The devil is a created being. The devil has been defeated by Jesus Christ. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no equality with God and the devil. But sometimes we can underestimate the devil. The devil has schemes. He's looking for opportunity. He probably knows you and him and his minions probably know you and I better than we know ourselves. And he knows just the right time with the right temptation, I'll give in. And, and so we got to be careful not to underestimate the devil, but we've also got to be super careful that we don't overestimate and give too much credit to the devil. Give him too much authority, too much power, like, oh my gosh, like, how am I ever, ever going to overcome? Well, what Paul teaches us is that you in and of yourself are not able to overcome in your own strength. But here's what he says, and this is, we've already read the verse, but I'm just trying to drive home the point that Paul is driving home. It's the first thing that we have to, how do we fight this battle? Number one, we stand in the strength of Jesus Christ. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In fact, James picked it up in verse, chapter 4, verse 7. He said this, you're to submit to God. You're to resist the devil, and he must flee. Like, it's about our posture and our position of yieldedness and surrender and submission to Jesus Christ. I love this quote from J.D. Greer. He says, if dependence is the objective, then weakness becomes an advantage. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I need you now. Not, not, you know, you've recognized what Christ has done for you. In fact, this is the whole letter to the letter to the Galatians. He's saying, why have you so quickly departed from where you started? Where you started was in Christ. Why are you trying to figure this thing out in your own strength? No, no, no. Finally, henceforth, I need you to remain in Christ Jesus and in the power of his might. Be dependent upon him. And then the second thing he leaves us with is found at the very end of the chapter. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. Look at this, so that in the, day, the days of evil come, you may be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. My question to you once again as we close is, whose armor is it? 
It's his armor. It's not our armor. It's not our ability. It's not our kind of own strength, our own wisdom, our own independence. No, no, no. Paul is constantly trying to teach us that in this life where you're advancing the kingdom of God as a new humanity, there will be resistance and you have to stand in Christ and in the power of his might and you have to put on the full armor of God. Full armor of God. Sometimes we get enamored with, oh, the helmet or the breastplate or the, read, the, what, read what they actually describe. Because he actually says this, he says, put on the belt of truth. Isn't it interesting that he starts with the belt of truth? Like that's the first thing he lists. The belt of truth is that which holds everything together, right? Truth, the truth of God's word is what holds everything together. Your enemy is described as the father of lies. In fact, the only authority the enemy can have in the life of a believer is the authority you give him by believing the lies that he tells you. You're not good enough. You could never measure up. And I go, you're absolutely right, but I'm in Christ. And the truth of God's word must prevail over the lies of the enemy in this resistance and in this struggle. He goes on, and I'll just rattle through them. The breastplate of righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. But we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we become righteous. You're positionally righteous, but as you walk with Jesus over the years and over the decades, you begin to live more from your spirit than your flesh because he's the one that makes you righteous. You're clothed with the shoes of the gospel of peace. Your shield of faith, the shield of faith is such a powerful metaphor because it's not just a faith that protects you. They, they would raise up shields linked one to another to protect each other. Helmet of salvation. Remember we talked about this, that you've got to have the renewing of the spirit of your mind. Why? How? It's helmet of salvation. And pick up the sword of the spirit. Right? We know this to be an offensive weapon, right? That, that as the enemy comes with his lies, we take the sword of the spirit. Isn't that what Jesus did when Jesus was tempted by the enemy? Hey, bow down and worship me. I have no other gods, right? He uses the word of God to counteract the lies of the enemy. And as we close this morning and as we close out this series, I hope you recognize that you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been given a new status, a new identity, part of a new family. What, for what purpose? To advance the kingdom of God here on earth. Like we're entirely different. We live out of a different story. There's going to be resistance. How do we resist the resistance? We remain in Christ. We put on the armor. We give, we put on that which he has given to us in Christ Jesus. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to just stand together. And just almost as a, a, a just as a close of this series, I, th- it's, I really felt like this was a series for us that was a hinge series. It was like God was doing something in our hearts and in the heart of our church. And, and I feel like what the Lord in response would have us to do is to say, Lord, I'm shifting today. Like my heart is shifting. My mind is shifting. Lord, there may have been resistance. There may have been, Father, uh, attacks of the enemy. There may have been my own flesh and my own carnality in the world in which I live. But I understand, Lord, now more clearly than maybe ever before that there's a new status and a new identity in Christ Jesus. That you've put us together 
brothers and sisters from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different perspectives and, and upbringings and even perspectives about life for the future. Lord, all of it coming together in our new identity, collective identity is that we're in you, Jesus. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're members of the household of God. And we're advancing forward the kingdom of God. We recognize there's resistance. But Lord Jesus, we just hide ourselves in you. Lord Jesus, we get, put on the armor that you've given to us. Lord, we simply respond by saying, we're, Lord Jesus, we're members of your household. Lord, our allegiance isn't to this world. Our allegiance is to King Jesus to his domain on this planet. And, and so, Lord Jesus, we give ourselves afresh and anew. We give ourselves as a family, Lord Jesus, to this cause. In Jesus' precious name.